0: Again, good morning. Please turn with me in God's word to Colossians chapter 3. If you have been here the past few Sundays, uh, you've heard this before. Three sections, right? Section number 1, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, doctrinal. That's a word you can write over that first section. Second section, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, polemical. And a third section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, practical. And this third section continues all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, most of the time when I'm, I'm studying, I sit in front of the computer. Um, once in a while, I do something different. I'll just go off with, uh, with the Bible and uh, pen and paper and i spent an afternoon this past week i think it was maybe tuesday at starbucks savoring a coffee with my bible some paper and a pen and just reading over and over this third section colossians chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 6 and really just asking a question why is this important uh, why is it why does it matter and in particular, to be specific, why does it matter to us here at Grace Community Church? Uh, why should we care? Why should we spend time in these verses? And why should we go back to these verses uh, repeatedly? And I came up with a sevenfold response, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, number one, you already know, if you were here last Sunday, because I really hammered this home in a gentle way last Sunday. Uh, Reason number one why this practical portion of this epistle is so important to us. It shows us God's will. It's that simple. It shows us God's will. I want to know God's will for my life. I don't need to look any further than chapter 3 of the book of Colossians. Paul, if you remember, way back in chapter 1, he prays. It's a beautiful prayer, eloquent prayer saturated with many truths, he prays simply that God would fill these believers, fill us for that matter, with what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him, pleasing God, in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And so if I want to know God's will, if I really want to know what God requires of me, wants of me, here's a great place to start, Colossians chapter 3. So that's why it should be important to us. That's the first reason why it should be very important to us here at Grace Community Church. Reason number two, this section shows us that Christian living is about balancing the indicative and the imperative. Now, I need to explain that, don't I? Christian living is about balancing the indicative and the imperative. Grammar. We all love it. Grammar. The indicative. What is it? The grass is green. That is the indicative mood. I'm simply stating a fact. The imperative. What is it? Go mow the grass. It is a command. The imperative mood. And so you have the indicative, a statement of fact, and you have the imperative, a command. This passage, this section, balances the imperative and the indicative. It balances what we are in Christ and what we are supposed to do, what he requires of us. Uh, Many believers, professing believers, uh, some sincere but perhaps just confused, uh, struggle with this balance. It's kind of like uh, a seesaw. Do you remember the seesaw? Do they still have them in playgrounds? Are you allowed on them anymore? Probably have to wear helmets nowadays. <laughs> but I, I remember elbow pads, everything else, mouth guard. I remember being on a seesaw as a child, and they were fun. But what made them really fun was what? The goal was to get the other person up as possibly, as high as you possibly could and then jump off, right? So they would come crashing to the ground. Far too many of us, when it comes to balancing the indicative and the imperative, we're like this, up and down. And so you have some people who, who are inclined to think, well, you know, I can, uh, I can obey God. I can obey without knowing God's grace. It's a moralist. I can obey without knowing God's grace. It's an extreme view. It's the idea that, yeah, yeah I, I understand Jesus died on the cross. Praise the Lord. I, I'm all for that. And, and I understand that I've made some mistakes in my life. Call them sins if you want. I prefer the word mistakes. The glass, but the glass is half full, meaning I'm actually a pretty good person. The Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful to God for him, because the Lord Jesus has come along to fill what is lacking, the other half of the glass. And he died on the cross for my sins, I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, I sing about it, and it's a nice, it's a nice sentiment. And uh, really what's going on at the cross is Jesus is just showing me how much he loves me, that he's prepared to suffer so much. And now I know, because I keep hearing it, he has a wonderful plan for my life. And um, what he wants me to do is simply be a nice person. And uh, if I'm a nice person, he'll bless me. And a lot of people go through life like that. That is their perception of the gospel. I dare say it's probably one of the most false, popular false perceptions of the gospel in our day. That I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty nice person. Some shortcomings. Jesus fills up what's lacking somehow through the cross. And God just wants me to be nice. And if I'm nice, nice equals blessing. And God will get me and give me uh, what I want. Starting point is all wrong. Uh, the starting point is what? Is, is us understanding that. Uh, when it comes to our relationship with God, our, our standing with God, we're, we're basically a corpse. right? Spiritually speaking, a corpse. A corpse, in the one sense, uh, uh, decaying. a decaying and a stench, really, when it comes to God's nostrils. Because we are riddled with sin. A- and a corpse, in the second sense, that we're actually incapable of doing anything that is good in God's sight. The moralist completely misses that. The moralist has no understanding of the true nature of sin and the true condition of their heart before God. And so they fall into this extreme, well, I can obey God without really knowing his grace. But then that seesaw it flings to the other extreme and there's some way over here who go the other way and they say, well, you know, I can know God's grace without really obeying. Did you hear that? It was a play on words. Back over here, I can obey God without knowing his grace. The other extreme, I can know God's grace without obeying. And there are plenty of people running around with that false perception today. Basically, the idea, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And the Lord Jesus died for me to wash away my sins, and he's forgiven me. And he's forgiven me so I can fail. He's forgiven me so I can mess up. He's forgiven me so I can disobey. And, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter what I do. God's forgiving. He has forgiven. He's already forgiven everything. He never sees my sin. And he just has these wonderful thoughts about me. And people should just start accepting me as I am. And then that old verse is pulled out of the hat, isn't it? Matthew chapter 6, do not judge, lest you be judged. I love that one. Always completely ripped out of its context, misinterpreted, misapplied, misunderstood. Lots of people running around like that. Plenty of them on Facebook, as a matter of fact. It's, it's, it's discouraging. I, you know, I've, I've told you before, I lectured at a Bible college years ago back in Ontario. And so I'm friends with, with several of, uh, of the students I taught at that time. And some of them, oh, praise God, really going on for the Lord. And some of them, this extreme that I've just described. I'm a Christian, but I, I, I'm, I'm living however I want. But God forgives me. And how dare you? How dare you judge me? These two extremes on this seesaw, this passage of Scripture corrects both. This passage of of Scripture is so important because it maintains the balance between the indicative and the imperative. We have it all in the first four verses. Do you remember? Paul takes us on that journey, past, present, future. If you're a believer, there was a moment in time in which the Holy Spirit made you one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died. And you have been resurrected with Christ. It means the penalty of your sin is paid in full because you're one with Christ. It means the power of your sin has been broken. Now you have this present life. Your present life, Paul tells us, is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, As you appear is not really as you are. Now, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are holy in God's sight in the Lord Jesus. You are righteous in God's sight in the Lord Jesus. Your life is hid with Christ in God. It's a wonderful reality. And then the future is coming. That day when the Lord Jesus will return. That day in which he will return in glory. And we will be like him because we will see him. The past, the present, the future, the indicative. The indicative who we are in Christ Jesus. But in the middle of all that, what does Paul say? Basically says this. If you understand that, Christian, then live like this. Set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above. That is the imperative. That is how Paul teaches godliness. That is how Paul teaches holiness. Holiness is all about understanding who we are in Christ Jesus and then living like it. That's it. It is understanding the indicative, who we are in Christ, past, present, future, and then living it out in life, the imperative. There's the balance. And that balance makes this section in Colossians of utmost importance. Third reason is this. It was a long afternoon in Starbucks, by the way. Third reason is this. It shows us that Christian living, now don't turn me off, listen carefully. It shows us that Christian living is about do's and don'ts. Hmm. It shows us that Christian living is about do's and don'ts. Now, that's not legalism. I'm not talking legalism. I'm not talking about God's acceptance of us. I'm not talking about the legalist who thinks, well, I need to do this, I don't do that, I perform, and and on that basis, God will accept me. It's all dependent upon me. It's all contingent upon how I live, what I do, what I don't. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about Christian living. In this passage, as I was reading it Tuesday afternoon, I just counted quickly, so give or take one or two. From Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 6, there are at least 22 commands. Christian living is all about do's and don'ts. We now have a king. We now have a lord. We now have a master. And he has saved us that we might obey him. Lots of confusion about this. It goes back to my comments regarding some of those young people on Facebook. Not just, just not found among young people. It's found among professing believers of all sorts of ages. Th- this understanding, and I think I've said this here before. I, I hope I've said this here before. Th- this, this idea that uh, Christian freedom, I'm free in Christ, right? Hallelujah. What do we mean by that? The idea that Christian freedom, uh, Christian freedom means... Uh, I am free to do whatever I want. That's how a lot of people interpret. That's how a lot of people understand Christian liberty. Uh, Christian liberty means I'm free to do whatever I want. No, it isn't. Christian liberty, according to the word of God, means I am now free to do what God wants. Do you understand that? That's true freedom. True freedom is not to be free to do whatever you want. That was our problem before God saved us. That's why we were hell-bent. No, true freedom, true liberty is the freedom to do what God wants. It is to orient our lives according to his revealed will. And that makes Colossians chapter 3 of utmost importance. Fourth reason is this. It shows us that Christian living is about putting off and putting on. Not my language, Paul's language. He uses it on a number of occasions in these verses. He uses it firstly to describe conversion. When God saved us, we put off and we put on, positionally. When God saved us, we were made one with the Lord Jesus. We put off the old humanity, all that we were in Adam. So a darkened mind, a hardened heart, an enslaved will, corrupt thoughts, corrupt desires, Corrupt dreams, aspirations, words, thoughts, deeds, actions. All that we were in Adam, we put off positionally. And we put on, we were clothed with the Lord Jesus. You see, that's, your, that's, that's our condition. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We're either still clothed with Adam and the corrupt human nature or we are clothed with Christ positionally. And now that that's true of us positionally in Christ... Paul now teaches, now live out what you already are. And that means daily you must consciously put off and put on. And tomorrow, guess what? Put off and put on. And Tuesday, put off and put on. Just like we put off and put on our clothing every day. This is something we do. We are not seeking some second blessing. We are not seeking some higher spiritual life. We are not seeking to reach sinless perfection. There isn't something out there, there isn't some experience we're lacking or something if we could only tap into, if this could happen to us, then I'd finally be holy. No, we've got everything we're going to get by virtue of being made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're now called to what? Discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And that means daily we put off and we put on, we put off and we put on, we put off and we put on. on. It is a duty we perform out of love for him who first loved us. I'm inclined to think, I was thinking this through this past week as well, and I think think this is accurate. I really do. I wouldn't say it. That putting on is the priority. I'm not saying it's of, of more importance. But sequentially, I think putting on takes precedence over putting off. For the following reason. The more we put on, the more it naturally squeezes out the rest. And so we have trees here in Texas called live oaks, right? Live oaks. They're sometimes called evergreen oaks. It's a misnomer. They're not really truly evergreens. They do lose their leaves. But they only lose their leaves when? In spring. They don't lose their leaves in fall. Most of our trees, leaves come down and fall. They're bare for four or five months before the buds come and the new leaves come. But evergreen oaks or live oaks, no. They lose their leaves in the spring. Why? Because the new leaves begin to appear and they push out, force out. No longer any room here for you. The new pushes out the old. And I think this is true when it comes to our pursuit of godliness. The more we put on the less room there is for those things that we need to put off. Uh, Putting off is extremely important. We considered this last Sunday. Uh, Paul tells us that we need to identify the root of our problem. The root of our problem is idolatry. Our disobedience of the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. We have all sorts of gods before God. And because of this idolatry, it affects our thoughts It affects our emotions, our desires, and eventually our actions. And so we need to kill sin, but we need to kill sin in its beginning. And where does it begin? It begins with idolatry. You go back, it's fascinating. You go back and you read the Old Testament and and pay particular attention to how Israel dealt with idolatry during the good times. It really begins with Moses. And when Moses descends Mount Sinai, And he sees that idol, that golden calf that Aaron and the Israelites constructed and erected during his absence. What does he do? He does three things. Firstly, he burns it. Secondly, he grinds it to dust. And then thirdly, he scatters the dust. That becomes a symbolic action in the history of the nation of Israel for how every godly man subsequently deals with idols. And so read, just for example, the godly kings. There are only a few of them in the history of the nation of Israel. King Asa, King Josiah, King Hezekiah. You read those three. And they instigated, initiated a renewal program, so almost a reformation within the kingdom of Judah. And they dealt with idolatry. And how did they deal with idolatry? Exactly how Moses had. They burned the idols. They ground them to a dust. And then they scattered them. That is how we are to deal with idolatry in our lives. But you know as well as I do, if you don't put something in the place of the idol, it will quickly come back. And so how do you, what, what's the key to controlling weeds in your lawn? The key to controlling weeds in your lawn is healthy grass. The healthier the grass, the fewer the weeds grow. So put on, put on, put on the new self, the new man, what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we put on, the less room there is for the old. And we will find the new pushing out, pushing away, helping us to take off the old. That's the fourth. The fifth is this, the fifth lesson, reason why this section is so important. It shows us that Christian living is about being countercultural. Christian living... Is about being counter-cultural. So I want to make a difference with my life. Nothing wrong with that. It's good ambition. I want to do something with my life. I want to do hard things. Some of the young people are reading that book right now. Do hard things. It's an imperative. That's fine. No problem with that at all. Uh, I want my life to account for eternity. Right? Have you ever spoken like that or thought like that? I want to glorify God the answer for all of those is found right here in this passage of Scripture. The most difficult thing I will ever do in life is live out this text. You want to influence people? Live like this. You want to make a difference? Live like this. You want to glorify God? Live like this. You want to avoid wasting your life? Live like this. You want to do hard things? Live like this. Because what Paul expounds in this section is completely antithetical to the wisdom of the age in which we live. You want to stand out, live like this. You want to be edgy and countercultural, live like this. We hear that kind of language a lot today, don't we? But in Christian circles, I want to be edgy, countercultural, engaging. And for a while there, that kind of meant skinny jeans, Mickey Mouse t-shirt, three days growth, and maybe a new tat on the forearm. I'm being culturally engaging and being different, right? To which I say, time to grow up. It really is time to grow up. You want to be culturally engaging, culturally different, edgy? Live out this passage of Scripture. Because by living out this passage of Scripture, we will find that we are radically different. From those in the society in which we live. So again, it shows us that Christian living is about being countercultural. Sixth reason is this it shows us that Christian living is about being truly human. It's about being truly human. We've put off the old self. We've put off Adam. What was wrong with the old self? What was wrong with the old humanity? In a word, corruption. Our thoughts completely corrupted. Wrong thinking about God and eternal realities. And our desires completely corrupted. And so we succumb to idolatry. Chasing after this, that, and the next thing. That marks, that characterizes the old humanity. We've put on the new humanity. Who is the new humanity? It is Christ. This is a wonderful truth. If you want to know what true humanity looks like, Look at the Lord Jesus. If you want to know what a true person looks like, you look at the Lord Jesus. Everyone else who is in Adam is representing and reflecting the old humanity which is corrupted by sin in which the image of God has been lost. And so to put off the old and put on the new that is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to actually experience what it means. This is, this is astounding to be truly human. If you are outside of Christ, you are not truly human. Humanity as created in the image of God. To be truly human, to be a true person is to put on the one who exemplifies true humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the seventh and final reason why this section is so important. It shows us that Christian living is all about community. Christian living is all about community. It's going to come out in a text we're going to look at in a few moments. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, What Paul says about putting off malice, Anger, hate, and what he's about to say in the passage we're going to look at about putting on compassion, kindness, and uh, and forgiveness, and bearing with one another, putting on love—all of these things are relational. You can't put these things on in isolation. Oh, this is, this is counterintuitive to our understanding of the Christian faith because we're so individualistic in this society. It's all about me and God. It's all about God saving me, what God's doing to me, God in my life, me, my blessings, me and God. That's not the message of Scripture. Scripture never sees us as individuals, God never sees us as individuals in and of ourselves. He sees us and saves us as individuals to be a part of a community. And it is the community as a whole, the body of Christ, which is the new self, the new humanity, which collectively is being renewed in the image of God. And it is fascinating to see what Paul focuses in on in this passage. He makes it clear that the individual who lives by himself or herself, and this is so antithetical to asceticism in the entire monastic movement. The individual who goes off to live by himself, the individual who sequesters himself on the desert island, cannot be renewed in the likeness of Christ. Because it is a relational experience which happens in the context of community. And so we are a body. Paul made that point back in chapter 2, verse 19. He says we are knit together, all of these joints and these ligaments. And so he has this idea of, of a physical body in view. And we think of our bodies, as I explained some Sundays ago, and we know we're full of joints in our fingers and our wrists and our elbows and our shoulders and all over these joints, these bones that come together smooth, and there's no friction. They work harmoniously. And they're tied together. How are these bones and our joints tied together? Why does, my, why does it just fall off here? They're ligaments, These fibers tightly woven together that attach one bone to the other. Then there are tendons, these fibers which attach the bones to the muscles. And then we have flesh over it all, this skeletal structure. And then we have this cardiovascular system, the blood pouring from, pumped by the heart pouring through the entire body. We have this nervous system rooted in the brain whereby my brain sends out the slightest impulses of energy and moves everything. Everything functions in response to the brain. Because the brain is tapped into that, those nerves going straight through the spine. From those nerves, nerves descending through the arms and the legs, all the way to the extremities, the fingers and the toes. And it all works together and is held together beautifully. Now, hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking, imagine someone's got a pinched nerve in their neck. Not so hypothetical. In the neck. Don't feel anything. But then the fingers are numb. The fingers are tingling. The pain is felt in the elbow. The pain is felt in the shoulder. But the problem resides where? Something isn't working properly, functioning properly in the neck. A muscle is twisted. A bone is out of place. Something is going on. And Paul's point when he, when he, when he brings our attention to this, this, this analogy of the body is that we're knit together. Joints and ligaments and all these things were attached to the head, the central nervous system, the Lord Jesus himself, from whom we derive all life and energy and growth. And when every part is functioning properly, what happens? The body grows, whereby it builds itself up in love. But if one part isn't functioning properly, what happens? It's felt elsewhere. It impacts this part of the body. The pain is felt shooting down this other part of the body. This part of the body reacts because something isn't quite right over here. But when the body functions harmoniously as a perfect whole, each of the parts functioning in accordance as God has designed it, oh, the body grows, building itself up in love. You see, it shows us that Christian living is all about community. It is relational and renewal in God's image and putting on the new man can only take place in the context of Christian community. So I, 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 I worry sometimes. I worry for the individual who says, I love the Lord Jesus, but I don't really have time for his church. You ever met anybody like that? I've met lots of people like that. Lots of people like that. I love the Lord Jesus, but church isn't really my thing. I've heard that as well. Yeah, I love the Lord Jesus, but church isn't really my, my, isn't really my thing. I love the Lord Jesus, but I, I don't need what the church is offering. Um, I'll be as forthright as I can. I'm not sure you can be a Christian apart from the church. Oh. I'm not sure we can really be a Christian apart from the church. To be a Christian, guess what? It is to be in the church. It is to be in the body of Christ. It is to be knit together, whether you like it or not, in an indissoluble union with other sinners just as annoying as yourself as we're developed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new humanity, and collectively we strive and we struggle to put off the old and put on the new. It is entirely relational. That was a busy afternoon at Starbucks this Tuesday afternoon. Those were some of the things I was thinking about, trying to share it with some guy sitting beside me, but he wasn't buying it, wasn't the least bit interested. But I think seven tremendous truths That we find in Colossians chapter 3 that I I pray the Spirit of God, as we grow in our understanding of Scripture, impresses upon us the the importance of this for us, and the need for us to implement what Paul says in in this particular section. So with all that said, we come to verse 12. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 11, and I'm going to go as far as verse 15, and this little section is our text for today. And so follow along. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, I'll have to explain that in a moment, just keep reading. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on them, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, So last Sunday, put off. And I asked three questions. Uh, What, why, how? I kind of like that, so I'm going to stick with it. Put on three questions. What, why, and how? The answer to what begins in the 12th verse. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here we go. First thing Paul does, gives us five marks. Five characteristics, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I don't think I need to define those. I think we all know what those mean, and I think we all know them when we see them. Compassion, mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness, not far from it, and patience. What I do want you to notice is two things about those five words, those five characteristics. First is this they are inseparable. You can't divvy them up. You can't be compassionate without being patient. You can't be patient without being kind. You can't be kind without being humble. You can't be humble without being meek. And you can't be meek without being compassionate. You getting the idea? They are inseparable. They feed off of one another. Why? Because they all exemplify selflessness. You know what selflessness is? It's self-forgetfulness. That's all it is. Oh, to be self-forgetful. Oh, pray God makes us self-forgetful. Whereby our eyes are focused outward. Our eyes are focused on him. Our eyes are, are enraptured with scripture. Our eyes are riveted on other people. Oh, to be self-forgetful and to be other-focused. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. First thing I want you to notice, they are inseparable. Second thing I want you to notice, you should be able to guess it because I already alluded to it just moments ago. They are relational, aren't they? Look at it. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You can't be any of those things unless you are interacting with people. If you're on a desert island, Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. What have those things got to do with your life if you're living in isolation? What have those things got to do with the life of any man, any woman who is an island unto themselves, a lone ranger, just going it alone? No, they are relational. They are only seen, they are only evidenced, and they are only developed. It is only possible to put them on in the context of relationships with other people. Second thing I want you to notice is Paul gives us a couple of examples in case we're left in any doubt. The five characteristics, and then in verse 13, he basically says, look, here here are a couple of ways in which these five characteristics will will be evident for all to see. Number one, characteristic number one, or example number one, verse 13, bearing with one another. You're quirky, and I'm just as quirky as you. Bearing with one another, putting up with one another. Love covers a multitude of? Sins, that doesn't mean we excuse sin. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. What does it mean? It means out of love for you, you love for me, we put up with all kinds of offenses. We put up with things that are said, looks that are shared, things that are done, personal grievances. We put up with a lot. We bear a lot because love covers a multitude of sins. But he gives a second example, still in verse 13. If one has a complaint against another, here it is, forgiving each other. So first, bearing with one another. Second, forgiving each other. Look at what he goes on to say, same verse, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Oh, just a side note. I think I do have to make this side note. All my time here, a sermon I preached on Psalm 129 on forgiveness has probably generated the most feedback of all the sermons I've ever preached, at least feedback that's come my way. I'm still getting comments on that. It has to do with what? Forgiveness and the nature of forgiveness. What it means to forgive. We forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. How has the Lord forgiven us? Two essential requirements. It's not an emotional change. It is a transaction. His justice has been satisfied and we have repented. Still getting feedback on that. If you're still in doubt, or maybe that's just piqued your curiosity, it was Psalm 129, one of the Psalms of Ascent. You can go back and listen to it again or or, or ask me for copies of certain sections of that sermon. I'd be happy to give it to you. The true nature of forgiveness, this transaction. There's the paradigm. There's the example. We forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us, so you also must forgive. So we have these five characteristics. They're beautiful. We understand that they're inseparable. They're relational. We understand now by way of two examples what they look like, what they really mean. We put feet to these characteristics. We bear with one another. We forgive one another. And then the third thing Paul does, bringing us into verse 14, is he gives us the key. Look at what he says. And above all these, what are these? He's referring back to the five characteristics in verse 12. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, he is alluding to the body, knit together by the joints and ligaments and bonds and tendons and everything else, that as we are knit together by the Holy Spirit, and as we abound in love for the head, the Lord Jesus, and therefore in love for one another, This love is seen, how? In compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Two riveting examples, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And when this happens, love binds everything together, and there is what? Perfect harmony. The body builds itself up in In love. That's the what. When you just step back and you think about the, that, those three stages in Paul's de- development of Paul's thought there, and we can sum it all up in one statement. You know what he's telling us to do? You probably already guessed it. Put on Christ. That's all he's saying. He just kind of drags it out a little. Put on Christ. Compassion. Oh, think of the Gospels. His compassion, his mercy toward the leper. Do you remember that story? The paralytic. The woman with the hemorrhage. Oh, think of his kindness. How he fed the multitude who were hungry. Think of his humility. He took the form of a servant. He exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. Think of his meekness and how he dealt just with the disciples. Oh, his meekness and gentleness in the face of their ignorance at times, stubbornness more often than not, and his patience when faced with opposition, betrayal, Crucifixion upon Calvary's cross. Oh, we see it with the Lord Jesus bearing others, forgiving others. Why? It brings us into verse 14. Because of his love for us. His love for us, whereby he forgives us and he bears with us. And he is compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient in his dealing with us. That's what Paul's saying. Put on Christ. Let me rephrase it. Be a real person. Be a real human. You are now part of a new humanity. You are to live as God originally designed humans to live. You are no longer in Adam. You are no longer part of the old humanity. You've been saved, transferred out of it. You are now one with Christ. You're to put on Christ. You're to be in action, which you already are in position, part of a new community, a new humanity, a body abounding in those five characteristics, those two examples, and then everything bound together in perfect harmony by love. Answer the second question. Why? Why should I do that? We've answered that question in many ways already, but Paul draws our attention to two reasons in particular. First reason, look at the start, a little tricky, look at the start of verse 12. Put on then. The word then isn't temporal, it is causal. You could use the word therefore. Put on then, put on therefore. You see that word, you read it, put on then, put on therefore, what do you immediately do? Oh, okay, the command that Paul's given now is based on something he has just said. He has just given me the reason why I ought to obey this command. And so we go back into the 11th verse, and what do we read? Here, again, he's describing the new humanity, the new community, the church, those who are in Christ, here, and he gives us four couplets. There is not Greek and Jew, that's couplet number one circumcised and uncircumcised, number two, barbarian, Scythian, number three, slave, free. And so you take those four couplets, and what do we discover? We discover, look, in the body of Christ, this new humanity, all those who are made one with Christ, national identity doesn't matter. There is not Greek and Jew. Greek was just a common word for Gentile. You're a Jew or you're part of anybody else, the Gentiles. And so it doesn't matter. In this new humanity, new community, it doesn't matter if you are Jamaican, Canadian, British, Zambian, Iranian, Russian, American. It does not matter. Let me phrase it another way. God does not care. This body, this humanity is without national identity. There's no preference. Secondly, it's without religious heritage. Not Greek and Jew, that's the first couplet. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Those are religious terms. And so Paul is saying, look, in this new community, your religious heritage doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a Christian home or not. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a secular society or a Muslim society or a Hindu society. It doesn't matter if you frequented a church 30 years or if this is your first time in a church. It doesn't matter. There is no preferential seating when it comes to the body of Christ based on your religious heritage. The third couplet points to cultural refinement. Barbarian. That's pretty bad. It gets even worse. Scythian. A particular barbarian. I think they lived what would be modern-day Iran. Feared, dreaded, and despised. In the body of Christ, that cultural despising of other cultures or perceiving others to be lower than ourselves, it disappears, it evaporates in the body of Christ. And then the fourth couplet, economic status, slave or free, economic status. And so Paul's point, we got this new humanity, all of these things, identifiable things, by which we determine an individual's value completely evaporates when it comes to the body of Christ. The body of Christ, this journey we're on, friends, it's not like a plane. You know, you're bored in the front, and if you're like me, you walk through first class, not making eye contact with anybody, business class. And you're really getting frustrated. Even then you have that preferred seating now on a lot of planes, and back you go into coach, and then there's some guy stowed away in the the baggage. The, The journey we're on, and the body of Christ, is not like that. No one is closer to Christ than anyone else. No one. I made this point a month or so ago, didn't I? That the Apostle Paul was no closer relationally to the Lord Jesus Christ than the thief on the cross. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, what your citizenship is. It does not matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. It doesn't matter what kind of training or education you have. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter. These things, when it comes to the body of Christ, although there are roles and distinctions, when it comes to value and worth... These things by which we gauge an individual's worth completely disappear in the new humanity. Are you getting all that? Why? Christ is all. Christ is everything. And he's as much in Christian as he's in me. As much in me as he's in Brian. As much in Brian as he's in Joel. Christ is in all. We have been filled with his fullness. Put on then. Do you get it? the thought flow, the logic. Therefore, put on. If you perceive that, if you understand it, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Treat people accordingly. The second reason is not our position so much as our election. Verse 12, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so to be a Christian... Is to be one of God's chosen ones. To be a Christian. Stepping back in the the corridors. Before time. Before creation. Just as he chose us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless. Before him. Oh there is much mystery here. It is clouded in mystery. But we proclaim and we affirm what we can. What scripture reveals. That God in his infinite wisdom. As he foresaw. Humanity, in its fallen state, chose to himself a specific people whom his Son would redeem, whom his Spirit would regenerate, and whom he would put on public display for all eternity as a living testimony to his glory. I know people object to that, and it it rattles people's thinking a little bit. The starting point, again, I affirm there is mystery. But the starting point is this. It is the doctrine of God's just liberty. We won't understand election until we understand the doctrine of God's just liberty. The doctrine of God's just liberty is this, friend, however painful it might be for us to hear it. God does not owe us anything. God is no man's debtor. When Lucifer and the angels that followed him fell and rebelled against God, God made no provision for their salvation. Did he? He left them. He could have done the same to us. Adam and Eve fell. Human nature corrupted. All of us sinners from the moment of conception, God was not obligated to save any of us. He doesn't owe us anything. He is no man's debtor. Just liberty. God is free to condemn everyone because that's what we deserve. God is free to judge us now. That's what we deserve. God is free to save save whomever he pleases because he doesn't owe anyone anything. Oh, I know it's perplexing. And I know it can be a little troubling. But what security there is in that to know we are saved for one reason. It is God's sovereign grace. And those whom God foreknew in this intimate way before the foundation of the world, he predestined at that time to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called at a specific moment of time, the new birth by the Holy Spirit. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified already passed tense in God's mind. He has glorified our life is hidden with Christ in God we are simply awaiting the time it's a fact it's going to happen the time when Christ return and we will be glorified with him oh we are God's chosen ones why has he chosen us that we can live happy lives that's not what he says so that we can be free of all trouble and turmoil that's not what he says so we can get some sort of preferential treatment that's not what he says So he can bless us with health and wealth and prosperity and happiness and bliss. That's not what he says. As God's chosen ones, holy. That's why he chose us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless. He has saved us to make us holy. That is morally pure like himself. Why has he chosen us? I know my own sinfulness. Why has he chosen me while he has passed others by? Look at that last word there. Beloved. It is because of his love for his people in Christ. A covenantal love. An eternal love. An unchanging, unwavering, I love this word, immutable love. Oh, put on then. Do you get this? Put on then. As God's chosen ones, elect from before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy. Why? Out of his love. Oh, be reasonable then. Put on compassion. Put on Christ. Live like him. Live what you already are in him positionally. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Get over yourself and bear with one another and forgive each other. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Two motivating factors. Our position, our election. Brings us to the third question, how? We've already answered that in many ways as well, but he gets very specific in the 15th verse. Another command. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Look again, the emphasis on the body to which indeed you were called to live an individualistic life in isolation apart from the church. No. No. To which indeed you were called in one body. This new humanity, this new community. And look what he adds. This isn't throwaway, folks, at the end of verse 15. And be thankful. As a matter of fact, to make sure we get it, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. You got it? He doesn't think we have, because look at what he says at the end of verse 17. Giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. That is through Christ. Three times, in just a couple of sentences, be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. Do you understand who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand? Do I understand that I am one with him by eternal union? God chose me before the foundation of the world. Oh, it's, there's great mystery and great wonder there. Do I realize I'm one with Christ by historical union? As Christ himself declared in John 13, 1, that John writes concerning Christ that he, having loved his own, having loved his own, Who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Who are his own. He prays for them in John 17. All those whom the Father has given me will come to me. He makes that clear in John 10. No one will snatch them from my hand. All will come to me. Those whom the Father has given to me. And he becomes one with us by way of a historical union. By taking our humanity to himself. And he's baptized in the Jordan River, isn't he? He's baptized, why? To identify that he's embarking on a public ministry. Meaning what? He's identified with his people in their sin. That's why he goes through the baptismal waters. And everything he does from that moment, till he hangs upon Calvary's cross, and even subsequently his resurrection and ascension, he does as a public individual, as the head of his body. "...having taken our humanity to himself, he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He obeys and he fulfills every jot and tittle of the law. And then his obedience takes him and culminates in his death upon Calvary's cross, where he bears the penalty for his sin on behalf of his people." His father raises him from the dead, testifying he is indeed the son of God, and testifying that he has accepted his son's sacrifice on behalf of his people. He has ascended on high. He has sat down at the right hand of his father, where he makes eternal intercession on behalf of his people, thereby guaranteeing the application of everything he has purchased for us. Oh, friend, be thankful. Be thankful. And as we are thankful, what happens? Working backwards in verse 15, we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Our desires to be at peace with our brothers and sisters. Every decision I ever make, no, not always, I've failed, I confess it, but I try. Every decision I make here as a pastor at Grace Community Church, do you know what my overarching number one question is? How will this maintain peace without compromising truth? That is the question. What will keep peace? What, what, what will just preserve peace, the peace of Christ? Yes, without compromising truth. And the answer to that question is what we are to put... That's how we're to approach corporate life. And then working backwards, what is it? Oh, this is, this is held together by love. This love is seen how? By bearing with one another, forgiving one another. This is what it means to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. This is what it means to put on the new humanity. It's relational. Isn't that obvious by now? It is corporate. It is something we strive to do collectively as we grow in thankfulness. Thankfulness changes everything. Thanksgiving transforms us, shapes our attitudes and opinions. It determines how we approach others, how we receive others, how we view others and how we love others. I think it's probably the question of questions as we reflect on everything we've heard today. Are you thankful? Just tear (laughs) everything else away, put it all aside, just get right down to it. Are you thankful? Am I thankful? We sang it earlier. Here it is. I'll conclude with these words. You're rich in love, and you're slow to anger. Your name is great, and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Oh, our Father, that is our song of celebration this day. As we consider your love for your people in your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us understanding, as always we pray. May you implant your word a deep within. May the harvest be bountiful. May the fruit be bountiful. And we pray that through the proclamation of your word, your kingdom might come among us this day. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.